I think people are still trying to figure him out. And when he comes to negotiations, does he have the votes? And is he able to take back a negotiated deal back to his conference and pass it? Welcome to the Powers That Be Daily, Puck's podcast focused on the intersection of Wall Street, Washington, Silicon Valley, and Hollywood, and the players who run it all. I'm Peter Hamby. It's Thursday, January 18th, with another threat of a government shutdown and Washington at a stalemate over border security and Ukraine funding. I'm joined today by Abby Livingston and Tina Wynn to talk about the man at the center of it all, Republican House Speaker Mike Johnson. Three months into his tenure as Speaker, Johnson is still an unknown quantity to many Americans and many people in Washington. Abby and Tina go deep on whether MAGA forces in the House trust Johnson and how long he can hold on to power in an increasingly unstable Congress. We'll discuss all that and much, much more on today's episode of The Powers That Be. Happy Thursday, everybody. Welcome to the powers that be. We have a very special powerhouse episode today. I'm joined by Abby Livingston and Tina Wynn to talk about the wild and woolly world of Republican politics on Capitol Hill. Thank you both for joining me today. There's a lot in the news. We have stuff about shutdowns, immigration, Ukraine, White House meetings. But first, I should give a shout out to Tina Wynn, whose book, the MAGA Diaries, My Surreal Adventures Inside the Right Wing and How I Got Out is now out. Go buy it on Amazon. If you are a Puck supporter, if you love Puck, then you also must support our journalists. And that means, in this case, buying Tina's book. Uh, how does it feel to be a published author, Tina? Oh, my God. It feels insane. Like, <laughs> there are people who are reading it. They are sending me photos of their hard copies. A friend of mine just, like, took a photo of him like listening to the audiobook while vacuuming. <laughs> I don't get the audiobook thing yet. I'm still old school. Um, but I uh, read it before Christmas and people listening, go check out my conversation with Tina about the book. If you want a little sneak preview, we did a little Q and a that's up on puck. Go look it up. It, it came out right over the new year, I believe. Anyway, Tina, congrats. Having been inside the belly of the, the MAGA slash right wing activist base, you will bring a lot of insight to this conversation. But first, let me step back here. I feel like, Abby, every single time you're on the podcast, we talk about how we are just in a new frontier uh, with the house. It feels unstable. It feels chaotic. It feels toxic. It feels mean. It feels just like not very much <laughs> of a reliable institution at this point. And again, I want to get into the conversation about the shutdown and immigration, but Speaker Mike Johnson is now almost 90 days into his tenure as Speaker of the House following Kevin McCarthy and that crazy vote to replace him. How would you just describe the nature of his relationship with different factions of the House Republican Caucus at this point? I think the way I would describe it is people are still trying to figure him out. I mean, I, I and I, you know, I'm not a member of Congress, but, um, you know, I've talked with other reporters and I never heard of him before he was elected speaker and I was not <laughs> the only reporter and I obsess about these things. So I think there is a measure of figuring him out 
And I think of the, you know, what we can describe as institutionalist members. They're trying to give him the best go that they can. They're trying to support him in fundraising. But at the same time, I think the central question in Washington is, is this guy in over his head? Hmm. We don't know how he negotiates. This big four, the Senate, the two Senate Democratic and Republican leader and the House Republican and Democratic leader, we've had a very stable negotiation group over the last 10 years, 15 years. There's been, you know, every couple of years, maybe someone moves in and a new one moves out. But I think people are still trying to figure him out. And when he comes to negotiations, does he have the votes? And is he able to take back a negotiated deal back to his conference and pass it? And I think that the next few weeks are just a series of testing him. Tina, you are pretty familiar with the the House Freedom Caucus and obviously some of the more MAGA members of Congress and their impulses here. When Johnson was elected speaker, in my mind, he reminded me of one of these like 90s, 2000s Republicans Mm -hmm. who was sort of, you know, down the line conservative, church going, you know, he would have been, you know, at home in like the Rick Santorum era of the Republican Party on Capitol Hill. Mm -hmm. But he seems like, even though he seems cut from that cloth, has he evolved into a full-blown MAGA creature or is he still kind of one of these old-timey Southern Republicans (laughs) who was a backbencher, obviously, before he became speaker? I would definitely go with the latter. Look, he comes from activist world. And activist world is not necessarily MAGA world. Like, this is one of the things I keep going to in the book. Like, there are Mm -hmm. these weird blobs inside what is considered the right that have their own ideological agendas, tactics, organizations. They kind of overlap with each other in that loose network, but it's really different if you break it down. And I would say that Johnson comes from... Late 2000s, mid 2015s, like religious right activist world. Mm -hmm. And like his um, background is in these like religious institution think tanks. One of the biggest credentials on his resume is that he was a constitutional lawyer. It was this religious real liberty group that was specifically supposed to put these um, appellate cases before courts to, to like make decisions on large questions of religious liberty. Mm-hmm. And one of his most famous cases at that institution was like trying to make the state of Kentucky allow a Bible theme park to avoid paying taxes because it was mm. a religious institution, mm-hmm. um, something along those lines. And so he comes into this position as someone who like literally on his homepage says that one of his seven core principles of conservatism is I support free trade. And I'm like, that's not MAGA at all, dude. Like we are so past MAGA. We are so past all of these things that have long been like conservative hallmarks. MAGA has a much more apocalyptic view of what needs to change in Washington. And it's like, all right, we need to slash the budget. We need to do a bunch of reformations on the border on border policy and also don't give money to Ukraine. And if you can't give us all of these things at once, that means that you've caved. And to their horror, Mike Johnson may personally have more intense, like religious and philosophical beliefs than they do, but he negotiates with Democrats. And that is like absolutely not okay with them. 
<laughs> yeah, I'm glad you pointed that out those distinctions, you know, because I think they're they're sometimes lost on people who only started to pay attention to politics in 2015 or mm-hmm. 2016. I mean, he he feels again like one of those Republican revolution meets college Republican meets, you know, Bible banger Republicans from the Clinton era in certain ways, but is, you know, trying to morph into somebody who can massage the MAGA people in the caucus while Mm -hmm. also negotiating up perhaps with Mitch McConnell. Abby, do Republicans in the House, like in the Matt Gates kind of world, trust him at least more than they did Kevin McCarthy? Um, Because it feels like on an issue like immigration, he's holding the line. (laughs) <laughs> pretty well uh, d- defining hardliner you could say uh, on that topic um, or are they kind of running out of patience with him I think I will also defer more specifically on this to Tina on it but what I can say is I think we're going to know pretty soon these negotiations are really delicate but I just keep coming back to I think Kevin McCarthy got in trouble because he'd had years and years and years of interpersonal disputes with members that built up. But Mm. I keep coming back to this feels like an ungovernable conference. Their expectations are not in line with reality if we are going to keep the government functional. And, you know, I just I think if it had not been Mike Johnson, it would be some other member that would be running into this same problem. And I think what is further destabilizing is that we may avoid a government shutdown this week. I don't know if we will or not. But the only thing that's going to come out of Congress is another temporary funding bill. And I am now wondering if this is how we're going to run the Congress for the next year, where we'll just temporarily fund it. And we have this new toxic debate every six weeks that brought down Kevin McCarthy, and it could potentially bring down Mike Johnson. I just think this is a cyclical, dysfunctional situation And I think it goes so far beyond Mike Johnson. I want to take a quick break, guys, and keep talking about this cycle of mayhem on Capitol Hill. Welcome back to The Powers That Be, everybody. I'm joined by Tina Wynn and Abby Livingston. It's a blockbuster episode today. Before we went to break, we were talking about the continuing resolution to keep the government open. Uh, By the time you're listening to this, we're taping this on Wednesday afternoon, evening. Uh, Speaker Johnson will have already gone to the White House with the other big three, Schumer, Jeffries, McConnell, to meet with the president, who really, really, really wants President Biden (laughs) to unlock Ukraine funding because it's been months without us sending them more resources. The House is, as discussed before, holding the line because they want something done on immigration, or at least they say they do. But my question is, like, do do they really want something on immigration in the House or do they just want to wave the flag on this topic throughout an election year? Because McConnell in the Senate, he's saying, like, we're never going to get we have the leverage here. We're never going to get a better deal on immigration than we do right now. And, you know, if you were somewhat rational as a Republican, you might want to cut a deal. But it just sounds like Johnson is not interested in that. Is that going to be the case all the way through November of this year? I personally think so, but I'm also only talking from the side of the 
like I have pickled my brain in Freedom Caucus juice, and that's sort of the only way I can kind of view things at the moment. So, um, that's why Abby, we have please you feel on. free. To, yeah, Abby, free, please feel free to like swoop in and be like, "No, here's the rest of the world, Tina." But look, the Freedom Caucus has a pretty sizable number of members. But the thing is, is that they can only pa- like the House Republican Caucus at all can only pass bills and lose two members, maybe three, maybe four, depending on who's out at the time. Like Scalise is out right now for um, cancer treatment. Mm -hmm. And there are enough hardliners. There are certainly more than three hardliners that will just keep saying no, no matter what. And so Johnson is going to have to win one of those guys over. And that guy will just like stick his flag in the ground and be like, you can't move me. I refuse to move because I am making a stance I'm taking this stance for my constituents back home. Uh, the guy who immediately comes to mind for me is Eli Crane, who is like so like there is not a lever on earth that is long enough to move him, I think, um, <laughs> unless you destroy the federal government. And like that's the reality that any speaker has going into this. And Mike Johnson, sort of to his credit, is like the only tenuous bridge between the Freedom Caucus folks and the rest of the uh, conference. But it's also because he's trying to play both sides, right? Like, he is seemingly rational, not into punching people in the face with legislation and, like, rhetoric. He does have hardline credentials, but the leadership problem is, I guess, at the core of it. Does he know how to lead both of these guys in a productive direction? I don't know, Abby. Like, what do you think? I think it's just very important, and it's something I've had to kind of correct myself over the last year or so to remember how different the Senate Republican conferences and the House Republican conferences. I would describe the Senate as maybe eight years behind the House and radicalization. And so, to the best I can tell, and I could be fact checked on this one uh, incorrectly, but um, the idea of marrying Ukraine's support to a border deal came out of the Senate Republican world. And I've heard the leverage thing. There's an eagerness and there's this opportunity. Now, I moved to Washington in 2006 when George W. Bush was trying to move through his big immigration deal and fell Mm -hmm. on his face. And he put whatever political capital he had left behind it. And when I saw that Republicans were trying to put a border deal with Ukraine... I thought, uh uh-oh. So I think for them, in their mind, it's leverage. But I think on the House side, it's a complete and total poison pill. On top of that, you've got to watch Mike Johnson's rhetoric. And I believe he said something like he's not willing to talk about other things until the border is secure. Well, what does that mean? That has been a perennial conservative line when you want to talk about a border deal of like securing the border and then giving some sort of citizenship or pathway. Um, There's been an obstinance in the conservative world of we're not going to deal until nobody's crossing that border. So I, I think it's what I am seeing is a disconnect between the two chambers. Yeah, it's interesting you mentioned the comprehensive immigration reform back in 2007. That was McCain-Kennedy in the Senate. And I mean, I was at CNN at the time and I was covering the quote unquote blogosphere, if anyone is old enough to remember that era. But that part of the reason that bill was tanked was these grassroots conservative bloggers were putting an enormous amount of pressure on Republican senators to kill it. Uh, And, you know, the, the support for the bill couldn't expand beyond whatever gang was putting that (laughs) bill together because they were giving voice to the restive, 
anti-immigrant Republican base out there that one, eventually took over the Republican Party through Donald Trump, and two, some of those people out there are now actually in Congress. Like Eli Crane is like a good example, Tina. I mean, that guy, besides his name sounding like a bad guy from one of the Christian Bale era Batman movies, um, <laughs> he, you know, he's a millennial. Like he's young and like he, like a lot of uh, members of Congress, members of the House are young and came of age in the politically um, in the later uh, years of Obama, the Tea Party era perhaps, but also Donald Trump. And now... They're running the show. So, Abby, I think I think you have a point. And you've talked about this on this podcast before. Like, what happens after Mitch McConnell leaves the Senate? I mean, the, the eight-year lag of radicalism, it seems like, I mean, it could be even quicker than that, honestly. Well, I'll just add one thing. I think the consequences of this hit, if we do not fund the Ukraine effort, and Republicans, if we see some really horrific images coming out of Ukraine, Republicans are probably going to have to have a response to that. Um, mm. And as angry as they were at Joe Biden for what happened at, in Afghanistan, this is on them. And this is on the House Republicans. And they seem to be willing to go all the way on that. And it is going to be a, a horrific and extraordinary thing to watch. And Tina, I think the reason this stalemate exists in the first place, you know, I, I hate to sound like a resistance lib on Twitter right now, but it's like gerrymandering, like the government could shut down. We could hold out on an immigration deal. Uh, we could end up with horrific pictures out of Ukraine. And the hardliners in Congress won't care that much because they just need to get reelected by their base back in their district. I mean, on Tuesday, Jeff Duncan uh, announced he's retiring. Uh, that's South mm -hmm. Carolina's third district. I mean, for any reporter out there who wants to go cover <laughs> like a MAGA right wing free for all, like that primary to replace Jeff Duncan will be the most hardcore right thing you can imagine. That's a sort of rural slash exurban district in the Bible Belt of South Carolina. And I mean, that's that's who is really running <laughs> the show are those voters and them flowing up into the Republican hardliners. And until Johnson can somehow expand this extremely narrow Republican majority, um, those are the kinds of voters that are holding the government hostage right now. Or do I sound too much, Tina, like, um, you know, a blue check mark on Twitter? Oh, not at all. One of the things that always like made me nervous about the rise of like the extreme populist right in the Republican Party is the gerrymandering thing. Like, I remember back in 2015, I started this, and I end up, I wrote about this in the book quite a bit, but I was starting to report on whether there was a progressive equivalent to the Republican Party's incredible activist infrastructure, and mm. there really isn't. Um, they don't invest at the state legislative level to the degree that the right does. They don't really have the coordination and the, like, exchange of ideas that the right does internally in terms of like building out strategy. So over the decades, the Republican parties had this stranglehold on gerrymandering because they control the state legislators and because they're able to get people in office that have control over this. And the best way to draw a district is to figure out ways to make it majority Republican, either whether it's like packing them all in together to make like one super Republican district or taking districts that like don't really make geographical or any sort of sense when it comes to demographics. But there are technically enough Republicans in there. And those Republicans tend to be a lot more hardcore. Mm. Add to that the 
perverse incentive to win over a Republican primary voting base by being the most MAGA, the most populist you possibly could be. And at this point, like, yeah, you stacked Congress with people who are purely incentivized to be as like hardcore as possible and try to outdo each other in terms of how hardcore they are. And Mm -hmm. it doesn't necessarily mean that they're working on behalf of their constituents. Like, it's a lot easier to go on national on a national broadcast like Steve Bannon's War Room or somewhere on Fox and be like and raise your money from people outside your own district. It is lucrative as hell. Mm-hmm. So when you're pandering to a base that is like not even where you live, you're at that point just searching for influence and fame and not to represent the people you are obsessively supposed to be representing. That is as good a summary as any. Thank you guys for giving me uh, a reason to talk about something other than the dud of a Republican presidential race. Thanks so much for joining me. Thanks for having me, Peter. Thanks, Peter. Thanks so much for listening to another episode of The Powers That Be. As a reminder, The Powers That Be is the official podcast of Puck. We'd like to thank Ben Landy, Liz Goff, and Alex Bigler for their editorial and production guidance. If you like what you hear, please share with a friend. It really helps us keep delivering the inside scoop that only Puck can offer. Follow us on Twitter at Puck News. I'm Ben Landy. See you tomorrow. This has been a presentation of Odyssey. Please listen, rate, review, and follow all episodes wherever you get your podcasts. The Powers That Be Daily is executive produced by John Kelly, co-founder of Puck, Bob Tabador, and Ben Landy, executive editor at Puck.